Hey folks, Scott here. Listen, this is part three of a three-part series. So if you missed the first two, you'll definitely want to go back and listen to the, the previous two episodes first, and that'll make today's episode make a lot more sense. Also, I was sick while recording this episode, so my voice gets better and worse and better and worse. Finally, if you're a fan of the game Pitfall, you're not going to want to miss this episode. So let's get things started right now. Heavily Pixelated is a show that attempts to describe all the positive things that games do for us. I'm Scott C. Jones. We are in my parents' camper and we are looking for an ideal spot to shoot a YouTube video. My father was always interested in making big, showy displays of his incredible talents. His manhood, his masculinity. You knew a spotter? He knew a spotter. I remember even, you know, when we were kids, he had a guitar and he would sit and go through his song books every night and, and uh, he was teaching himself how to play the guitar. You know, I think he, he nursed a fantasy that he actually could be somebody who was a star, who was on stage, somebody who could, you know, draw a spotlight to him. He habitually took his shirt off every night while we watched TV and lifted weights. He flexed his muscles and showed off his body. And if we looked at him, he would say, what are you looking at me for? You know, he talked about how he was an incredible driver. No one could drive the way that he could drive. And that, you know, he had cousins or some uncle who wanted him to drive professionally. You know, I think these were always his fantasies that he would be able to be recognized as the great man that he was. And so in recent years, he has started talking about this, this thing he can do that nobody else can do. Do you want me to pull you? No. He describes it as he's able to stand up out of what he calls an Indian leg squat, which is where he sits on the floor with, with his legs crossed. I'm trying to get everything, you know, to see if I can That's do producer Sarah Deacon. Take your time. There's no rush. We've only been talking about this for five years. And, you know, kids can't do it. The best mm -hmm. athletes in the world can't do it, but he can do it. He's the only one, right? You know, I think his whole life has kind of been a quest to find out what he can do that nobody else can do. He wants to prove himself. So a couple of years ago, he, uh, he started talking about getting a video of him doing his standing up out of his Indian leg squat and putting it on the internet, putting it on YouTube specifically. Don't hurt yourself, please. While I was home in August 2018, one of the things that we were going to do was film him doing this after all these years. This is just a practice. We find a spot in the living room of their camper and he's ready. This is his moment. He's down on the carpeting, he's rocking back and forth, faster and faster, trying to get some momentum. He wants this, he's trying, he's really trying, but then he gives up. Why, what happened? You didn't try that hard. No, it's, uh, Does it hurt? Yeah, well I got that, can't see my scar. Uh, from what? Where's that from? And it's just that my legs cramp up. Like, oh, they cramp. 
After the molester and his family moved away, I made a list of things that I needed to be wary of in the woods. I learned about something called coy dogs, which is when a domesticated uh, dog would mate with a, a wolf. The result would be an animal that looked like a, a normal dog, but actually had the, the primal instincts of, of a wolf. They would roam the woods in packs. They could run out of the woods in broad daylight and drag you back into the trees. There was also a mythological gang in upstate New York, the Loomis Gang, which was a, a family of sociopathic outlaws who would roam the woods and rape, murder, rob. And my father told me that there was quicksand in the woods. I had only seen quicksand in movies, usually in, in jungle explorer movies. There were two terrible things about quicksand. One was how innocently it began. You stepped into what looked like a mud puddle and suddenly you couldn't get your foot out. And then suddenly somehow your other foot was caught in the mud puddle and you kept sinking. First your knees, then your waist, then your belly. The worst part was how slow it was. You had time, lots of time, too much time to think about your stupid mistake. I was never quite as carefree again when it came to going into the woods. I would always pause right at the edge just before stepping into the trees. There was a, a new kind of fear in my, my system. I was afraid of the woods. That makes sense. But what I didn't expect to find after all this was a new kind of of terror and intimidation at home in the form of my father. While I was interviewing my mother, producer Sarah Deakins sat down with my father. My father was born in the 40s. He grew up in the 50s and 60s. He came from a very military-centric family. His father did two tours of duty in Europe during World War II, and uh, his two brothers were also in the service. He tried to enlist as well. That was going to be my way out of the city. We were going to travel, and you know, because they made it sound good. I had to be 19 then, I think. So he was going to join the military, and he was going to travel. So it had to be three busloads. It was 380-something guys, and out of the 380-something guys, First one they he said out of the 380-something guys, I was the first one they flunked. Because of my allergies and trigger fingers and stuff like that. It was a big letdown. My parents got married in 1967. I don't know if I should even talk about this, but... Like, her and I never had sex before we were married, mm -hmm. even though... That's pretty normal back then. No, it wasn't. Nope. <clears throat> I lived in the city with bad guys. We, we started our sex lives at an early age, only because it was there. When I was going out with her, she told me, no, no, I want to wait. I, I loved her that much. I respected her enough to, you know, grant her wishes. So I'm thinking all this time, well, when we get married, you know, then we can go over to the other side. Well, that never happened. So they're married, but my mother is not the kind of wife my father was hoping for. It's not easy for me to talk about, but my father was hoping that there would be more sex and there's there's not enough his needs are not being met so he's frustrated and she's frustrated too anyway i come home one day and the place is empty she went home to her mother i says fine you know 
wasn't going to work anyway. But I went out and had a few drinks and still hung out with the boys for about a week. We only had one key to our apartment and it was on her car keys for her Volkswagen. I need the key because, you know, I got to tell the guy done renting the apartment. I got to hand the key and so I drove up to her mother's house and it was nighttime, like 10 o'clock and I figured everybody's going to be sleeping. And so I went to the garage where I knew she kept her car. And I got the door open, and I'm sure enough, the keys were there, and I'm taking the key off. Out she comes. She begged me to take her back. She says, I'll change, and this and that. She never did. I loved her enough to stay with her, even though I wasn't happy. She's a good woman. She just wasn't my kind of woman. I remember when I was a kid and Raquel Welch would come on the TV screen and she'd be wearing a low-cut dress. She had enormous breasts. My mother would be sitting on the couch next to us. My father, with sarcasm in his voice, would look at me and say, you know, your mother used to have a dress like that. She told me she wanted to have children. We had a problem because we were married like two or three years. And then her doctor called us in one day. Before we got married, she had a sister he moved on an ovary. And he called us in right out of the blue. And he goes, you know, if you're thinking about having children, if it was me, I would go ahead and try. We were doing the Planned Parenthood thing. We both had good jobs. She went off birth control. And sure enough, we had Scott. Well, it was a little scary, you know, because we were trying to plan our lives a bit. And, well, let's get financially set, get a house, you know, get everything going right. We both had new cars because we both had good jobs. Um, but, no, I was, I was happy when she told me she was pregnant. It wasn't so much for me. She wanted children anyway. And we had talked about it. Here are a few things you should know about my father before we go any further. My father hates eating in restaurants. My father doesn't call basketball basketball. He calls it African round ball because my father's racist. He hates it when people come into the house and take their shoes off but don't untie their laces properly. If he finds any shoes by the back door that are still tied, he will uh, pick up the shoes and open the back door and just hurl them into the middle of the backyard. He hates reading. He's very proud of the fact that he's never read a book in his life. He loves building things. He loves running his circular saw. And he loved forcing me to assist him whenever he was building a project, mostly to point out how completely useless I was. To this day, the circular saw sound makes my blood run cold. He referred to me and my brother as the girls. Get the girls out of bed, tell the girls it's time for dinner. He expected a detailed accounting of how we'd spent our days. While he was at work, while he was busting his ass, what did we do with our free time? All this free time we had, all the, all the you know, laughs and jokes and, and fun times and bologna sandwiches. So he started making uh, detailed lists for us in the morning of, of things he wanted done each day. And he expected those things to be done when he got home that night. 
My brother and I would be relaxing after school, relaxing after getting all of our chores done. We'd be watching the Brady Bunch, and then his truck would pull into the driveway, his tires spitting stones everywhere. My father really was an artist when it came to intimidation. You know, he, he just, he would slam a door and just change the air in the house. My father had a shotgun which hung on the wall in the living room on the mantel. The shotgun always seemed like a promise or uh, some kind of threat. The thing that's harder for me to talk about is the fact that he, he, he hit me. Um, he hit me and, um, and he hurt me. And I, I've never really known what to do with that. I've never known, really. Um, he seemed to really enjoy causing me pain. He could never tell me he loved me. He could never do anything affectionate. I think psychologically, he figured he was teaching me a lesson. He was teaching me that, that life was painful. It's hard for me to, to assess how much he loved me. I, I, I still don't really know. I, he always just kind of felt like he was going through the motions of, of being a dad. The conversation at this point turns back to the neighbor, the neighbor who molested me, and what my father did when he found out. Because I came home one day and she told me about it. I actually went out in the garage and I had a baseball bat out there. And I remember getting the bat, and all of a sudden I was just thinking, if I do this, I know I'm going to kill them. Yeah. And so the rest of all our lives are going to be changed. And the thing is, um, at that moment I was thinking too, I mean, it's going to be his word against mine. So even though I kill him, um, I'm the one that's going to go to prison. So anyway, I stopped myself. I never spoke to him again. I'd never even seen him again, I, I don't think. I don't think I ever seen him after that. So do you think that Patty believed Scott or that she didn't believe him? For the record, my mom's name is Pat and Sarah's referring to her as Patty here. No, I think she did because she was the one that told me about it. And, you know, and the other thing was, I wasn't just wanting to kill that guy. I think I wanted to kill her. But she thought it was so safe. We're out in the country. We got one neighbor a quarter of a mile away this way, and he was up in the woods. And, mm -hmm. and he, you know, she knew his wife real good. And so anyway, but she made a mistake. I know she's been sorry for it ever since then. But I don't know what we could have done different. Did you talk to Scott like, at the time about it? <clears throat> Did you tell him that you knew or that you... No, I didn't. I, I you know, I, I just, I couldn't handle it. So I just says, you know what, uh, I, I was glad I stopped myself from doing what I was going to do. Yeah. Because like I said, it, it, it had been a massacre and I wouldn't be here talking to you. same thing happened to her when she was a kid. No, we know about that. Yeah. You know about that. Yeah. I don't think she knew how to deal with it. But she had all that. 
from her childhood, which was a killer for She had this happen to her, and it affected how she handled it when Scott had it happen to him, and it also affected her love life. Her whole, yeah, her, yeah, her whole life together, it did. We have talked about it. Now. Yeah, now. But, but now, as he was growing up. No, because I wanted to put it, I wanted it to end. You know, you don't want... You want it to not... Yeah, not happen. Right. But it did, and I know it, and, you know, I'm really sorry about it. It's an awful thing that happens, and it's just a terrible world we live in, but what are you going to do? We can't change it. I'd be more upset with her, but then she told me the same thing happened to her, so... We move out to the porch of their camper to make another attempt. This is try number two. Like good? Oh, I see. Yeah, but he needs a soft spot where he can. I know. I'm just gonna come down here. You can't. You can't leave the door open. It's gonna drive you nuts. What? That's while he's doing it. Okay. One more thing, my father hates doors being left open. God help us all if a fly gets in the house. You want me to move a chair out of the way? So you don't, I don't want you to fall into these things. So. Here, there's my wallet. All you gotta do is fall into the chair. What is this group again? Yeah. I'm Bob Jones. I'm 73 years old. 72? 74. I challenge you to do this. I'm Bob Jones, I'm 74 years old, I'm from upstate Taylor. you to do this. Just keep it rocking. Keep it rocking. Don't give up. What happened? Yeah, it was better on the road. Oh yeah? Maybe it's too, uh, too hard in here. There is lighting, and we can turn lights on in there. Yeah. You guys have your lights. Just turn them on. All right. Operation. Take three. Well, she was like different from the other girls I knew. So. How? Um, I don't know. Number one, she was a lot taller than any girls I had come with. <laughs> you like I that? Never went with a girl that was taller than me, but. But she, I mean, she she was built like a model back then. If you ever seen pictures of her, beautiful, yeah. Oh, yeah, but I'm saying she was slender as could be. She looked just like a model. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used to laugh because um, I know people told me that her hands, you know, they have women with really nice hands mm-hmm. that um, hand sell stuff on. Yeah, yeah. hand model. Mm-hmm. And uh, she could have been one of those. She doesn't need a lot to make her happy. She's happy crocheting. She's happy doing these flowers. Do you think you guys still love each other? Oh, yeah. It's uh, kind of a no-brainer. She said, you know, her song was, I want to be Bobby's girl, so she still is. She's lucked out. There's just one thing I've been wishing for. 
told me the one of the hardest things the he my father is referring to here is me was that the um, woman the guy's wife a few days after that she had like some party over there yes and i was working and she made Scott go to it. This is the party at the molester's house that my mother forced me to go to. And he tried to tell her, I don't want to. But, um, you know, I'm not sure what she was thinking. But. I think the thing for Scott in this, the hardest thing that I've watched him go through isn't, isn't just the thing that actually happened with the guy. It's not being believed or feeling like he was being told he was wrong and, well, and not being protected. Well, the only thing is, is he knows we would do anything in the world for him. He was always loved. My father's words are lovely for sure, but they sound as hollow as a Hallmark card to me. Maybe they are genuine, but they don't feel genuine. They have a theatrical quality to them. So much of, of his story, so much of what he's saying sounds theatrical. Even the way he goes to the garage and grabs a baseball bat, like a theater prop. But that's it. He just grabs the bat and, and that's, that's the end of it. His piece of theater is done. Even the shotgun on the mantle in the living room is a piece of theater. Did I expect him to beat the shit out of that guy? Yeah, yeah, I did. I wanted somebody to beat the shit out of him. My mother didn't do anything. And my father, my father didn't do anything either. Nobody did anything. So the whole thing, even now, listening to this story, feels like it, it backfires on me. Because I wasn't protected properly. Because I wasn't loved properly. I had to provide for myself. I had to find things that could sustain me. In the early 80s, in addition to Pac-Man, which we talked about on the previous episode, um, two things happened. One was uh, in 1981, Raiders of the Lost Ark was in theaters. And the second thing was in 1982, Activision, a new company, released a game called Pitfall for the Atari 2600. Indiana Jones, he's the central character in Raiders of the Lost Ark. One of the things I liked most about him was that he had bullies too. Dr. Jones. Again, we see there is nothing you can possess which I cannot take away. You chose the wrong friends. This time it will cost you. Too bad the Jovitos don't know you the way I do, Belloc. Yes, too bad. I can't even watch that scene without wanting to put my hands through the screen and, and put them around Belloc's scrawny little pale neck. You could warn them. If only you spoke Hovitos. You'll get yours, Belloc, when your head's exploding everywhere later in the movie. In the game Pitfall, you play as an Indiana Jones-type character named Pitfall Harry. In Pitfall, you have 20 minutes. There's a timer ticking down in the top left-hand corner of the screen to explore all 255 levels and collect all 32 treasures. Something I never realized when I was a kid is that Pitfall Harry runs silently. Only when he jumps does the game make any sound. The quintessential moment of the game is when Pitfall Harry leaps into the air, grabs a vine, and swings elegantly across a pixelated swamp. It's a derivative of the call that Johnny Weissmuller playing Tarzan in the Tarzan movies from the 40s would do. The game has an almost soul-cleansing clarity to it. 
There's also a subterranean basement level, which takes up about half of the screen. The basement level is patrolled by a roaming white scorpion. It looks like a spider with a big tail on it. The basement seems kind of pointless. Why would you ever go down there? But I later learned that in order to complete the game, in order to find all the treasures within 20 minutes, you need to use the basement level as a shortcut. Traveling the span of one underground section in the game equals traveling three above ground sections. So using the underground is the fastest way to get through the game. Pitfall was compelling for me, not only because you were playing as an Indiana Jones type explorer, it was particularly appropriate for me since the woods had become a, a loaded place, a place that wasn't safe. In Pitfall, I, I could play in the woods. I could be a hero in the woods. I asked my parents if we could make a drive up to uh, the old house where I grew up, where we lived. I want to go back to the, to the woods. I want to go back to the place where, where this happened. I feel like there might be something there, an answer of some kind, and, and so that's what we're doing. We're in the car. We're on our way back to Powell Road, back to the house, back to the woods, back to the place where all of this happened over 40 years ago. Well, I want to stop, but I want to get out. Wants to stop and get out. So that that house is still the same. What the Hinman Ranch? The yeah. Very Hinmans, yeah. He wants to stop. I don't know where you're gonna stop. Stop. He walk wants breeze. to go walk on that road. He wants to go park up a little bit farther. Who lives this is here our now? House. I don't know. It's a nice color. There you go. You can get out. Right? Okay. I'll be right back. Thank you. 
Without even realizing that I'm doing it, I unzip my pants and relieve myself in the woods. What do I not have the right hand fingerprint to get in the car? My father gives the car a little more gas than it needs and revs the engine. What's on Daily Road? And we take off at a ridiculously rapid rate of speed. He drives like a maniac, but he settles down after a few minutes. I'd left one of my recorders in the car inadvertently, and later I discover the conversation that my parents had been having just before I got back into the car. The first sound you'll hear is Sarah getting out of the car. She's on her way to come find me, and now my parents are alone. One more day to go. One goddamn thing after another is what he says. I'm just going to drink until I don't understand the rest. My mother lets out a mellow, dramatic sigh. He says it'll be a fast ride into Utica, which is a threat that he's going to speed. Why do we have to get punished? Because you're not happy. That's right. Well, then let me drive my own car. You don't drive anything. Drive me nuts. This be the verse by Philip Larkin. They fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. Written by Philip Larkin, published in 1971. My last attempt. Yeah. You just have to roll a bunch first. Well, rock a bunch. Listen, he knows what he's doing. He's done it before. I've done a lot of times. He'll do it again. How did you discover you could do this? I only, um, I only do it when I'm in shape. And I'm definitely out of shape now. Alright. Is there any way you can edit that? Sure, of course. You can edit all of this. So what what I said before could be used with this? Just say it again. Say it again. 
He starts giggling like a little insane child at this point. What are you laughing at? Go ahead. My name is Bob Jones. I'm 74 years old, and this is the Bob Jones Challenge I'm putting to you. So close. Okay, do, say the thing again, because you're you, you're gonna do it. I know you are. He's the center of attention, and that's really all he ever wanted. Did you hurt your leg? No. Okay. But see, that's why you have to have something behind you. Yeah, yeah I know yeah. for sure. Say the thing again, though. Okay. I'm Bob Jones. I'm 74 years old, and I amaze my friends by doing this. Uh, it's a challenge I'm putting to you. Feel good? Yeah. Anybody over 70 should try this. Yeah? Yeah. Well. Any more words? Sarah's still filming him. Just you should should tell them to make sure they have a spotter. Make sure you have a spotter, that's important. Or in your case, put a big soft chair. Or a big soft chair. (laughs) Are we signing off? I'm signing off. Okay. Oh, that's great. You got it! Yeah, I can't believe it. Wow. Did you see how elated he was because he did that? Yeah. He kept justifying why he couldn't do it, though. He's going to do it every time he talked to Scott and talked about it. David. Hi. Hi, it's Scott Jones. This is David Crane, the man who made Pitfall. It's a total honor to uh, connect with you. I really just want to say just thank you for creating one of the most important entertainments in my lifetime. Pitfall sits in a place in my heart that very few entertainments sits in. Well, you know, it's a little known fact that I had more fun making it than you had playing it, so. <laughs> in your psyche, where where did where did Pitfall come from? What was it inspired by? Well, you know, inspiration comes from everywhere. Um, I did a game called Freeway, which was inspired by watching a guy try to run across 10 lanes of traffic at a trade show. Right. Pitfall, Pitfall was more driven by a technical experiment. Yeah. Back in the ni- early 1980s, late 70s, you know, most games, the main character was a jet plane or a tank, you know, inanimate objects that were easy to render in a video game. Right. And I wanted to have a realistic-looking human character, so I spent years actually creating that little guy, Pitfall Harry, trying to make him look realistic in eight pixels. It was really very difficult to do. So I had this little running man finally. I sat down, tried to make a game out of it, and I failed, and then I tried again and failed, and each time I went on and did a different game. You know, eventually I just said, all right, this is gonna be the game I'm gonna do, and started sketching. I drew a little stick figure, and the running man, where is he running? I drew a couple lines to make a path. All right, he's running on a path. Where's the path? I drew some trees. You're running in a jungle, largely because Indiana Jones had just come out. Right. Jungle themes were were on our mind. And why is he running and rolling logs and treasures to pick up and enemies to jump over and such. I also remembered a, um, a cartoon 
characters from like the 60s called Heckle and Jekyll. And Heckle and Jekyll, in the opening scene, they were shown running across a bunch of alligators with their open mouths, and they would run through their mouths, mm -hmm. and they would snap close just after they passed. You know, so I said, running running across the heads of alligators is kind of a cool thing. So with a nod to Heckle and Jekyll, I put that in. None of the other human type characters in the Atari 2600 catalog really had that much humanity about them. Yeah, it was very difficult to do that in 8-bit, but to use a single one of those 8-bit characters and make a human-looking character was a real challenge. Well, you really did it. I mean, you really gave him agility, and uh, he moved with a gracefulness, and it's kind of strange because it's a, a game that really came at the end of the life cycle for the 2600, and I think everyone kind of goes back and inserts more animate human characters into the 2600. 600 catalog because of what we saw from from Pitfall. I've had many friends who said, you know, man, I remembered that it was the greatest looking thing in <laughs> Right. And I just went back to look at it and it really looks like crap. <laughs> <laughs> It's true, but it was a long time ago, and, and we, you know, for sure, nostalgia helps us fill in some of the blanks. It always sits in a special part of my unconscious. It sits in a special drawer, and it, and it always will. My, my biggest question for you is, do you feel like having such success at such an early point in your career was a blessing or a curse? Well, I have no complaints. I mean, I have published close to 100 games on... 15, 20 different uh, consoles. Yeah. I've published programs in 25 different programming languages. Yeah. You know, a 40-year career, you, you do a lot. But I go to a conference and I'm Mr. Pitfall. <laughs> you know, so yes, it's a curse from that standpoint, but yeah. it's not a bad one. Not too long ago, one of the electronic gaming magazines did a top 100 games of all time, and Pitfall was in at 99. And to still be in the top 100 35 years later, after more than a million games have been made, is quite an honor. I've been in the industry for almost 20 years. Being able to just have a moment with you and, and to be able to thank you again for, for your incredible work is, is really an honor for me. So just th thank you, David. Thank you for doing what you do. You're definitely one of the people who built this, this medium into what it is today. Yeah, we knew it when we were doing it. We said this is going to have, you know, it's got everything that a movie has plus interactivity, so it'll be at least as big as the movie business. As of the first week in February, the Bob Jones Challenge video has 197 views. So what exactly did I get out in the woods? Well, it's not easy to say, but going out there made the place real to me again. This is a place that casts a long shadow over my life. But going out there and putting, literally putting it in front of me again and seeing how small and limited the real place actually was diminished the effects that this experience had always had on me. There are really two things you could do with something of this magnitude. One thing is what my mother did. She let the days pile up. She let the years go by. She never addressed it. She never fixed it or tried to fix it really. But what happened to her still did damage. These shows are my attempt to do something different. Whether or not they actually succeed remains to be seen. But more than anything, I feel like telling this story gives me ownership of this part of my life. It belongs to me now, and I've never really owned it before.
Special thanks to David Crane. If you want to see what David's up to, go to his Twitter feed. He's at Pitfall Creator. Thanks also to Frank Cifaldi from the Video Game History Foundation. Frank actually helped me get in touch with David. Thanks, Frank. If you like Heavily Pixelated, best thing you can do for us is to leave an iTunes review. That helps us so much. Thanks also to Chris Diamond, JP Davidson, Kali Abacassas from First Day Back, John Tady, Evan Narsis, Raju Mudar, Steve Tilly, Scott Alexander, and Stephanie Belding. Music tracks provided by the Free Music Archive, freemusicarchive.org. Tracks include Constellation, Claire de Lune, Morning Mist, Weird Doily, all by Poddington Bear. Boy, I love Poddington Bear. Skating by TRG Banks. And finally, the song you're hearing right now, The Forgotten Memories by Jenny Ruse. Stephen Nikolic is the technical producer of Heavily Pixelated. Sarah Deakins is the producer. My parents, for the record, participated in these two episodes uh, somewhat reluctantly. I hadn't seen them in almost three years. We'd been going back and forth for a few months about trying to figure out a way to see each other. And I told them I would come see them if they would agree to sit down with me and have honest, open conversations, really for the first time in our lives. I love them still, my relationship. I'm not going to lie and say it's fixed now, but I think at least things that needed to be on the surface, things that we needed to talk about are at least being talked about. That's it for season one of Heavily Pixelated. I appreciate you listening so much. Thanks for all your support. Keep an eye on the Heavily Pixelated Twitter feed and our Facebook page and my website, scottcjones.com. If you've been through something incredible and a video game helped you get to the other side, tell us about it. Send an email to heavilypix at gmail.com. Until next time, uh, I'm Scott C. Jones. Thanks again for listening, and uh, we'll see you soon. <laughs>